Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens. I don't know how your day went today, but one thing that I do know for sure, I'm glad that you have made time on this Tuesday evening to join us for another episode of That's Truth. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan. And for those who are listening this evening, we're very grateful that you've given us some time to get into your home and hope the program be a blessing. Pastor, as we were ending the program last week, we had a caller who called in and was asking a couple of questions, but one of them pertained to why are there no, if there are and why are there no women authors in the Bible? And in a follow-up question to that, another listener asked the question, who wrote Esther and Ruth and was it a woman? Well, if you check the book of Esther and Ruth, you'll discover that there's no indication in either of those books uh, who actually wrote them. Um, Esther, uh, as you know, um, is a Jew who married to a king called Ahasuerus. He is the classic king called Xerxes that um, attacked the the Greeks at uh, Thermopylae and lost the battle, and then at sea at Samalis, and he also lost the battle there, and then he married um, Esther. Um, the book of Esther is normally sandwiched in between the chapters of uh, Ezra, chapters 6 and 7, uh, about the period 484 to 465. It's a historical book, and it has to do with the preservation of the Jewish people and how God providentially intervened to prevent the Jews from being exterminated. Uh, the record of that particular book, uh, clearly the person who did the book of Esther um, had some keen insight into the Persian way of life. Uh, it gives you a lot of details about uh, um, Haman's son, that's the guy that tried to destroy the Jews. It also gives you tremendous details about Ahasuerus, who is the Xerxes of the history, and there are a lot of things about Persian customs and etiquette, Persian words, etc. And the word the Persian king is mentioned 180 times in that book. Whoever wrote the book had to have had access to the Persian records. And the one that uh, we read in the book itself that had access to the Persian records was Mordecai. Hmm. So it is believed, even though the name is not uh, mentioned that he wrote the book, uh, it is believed that um, Mordecai was the historical character that possibly wrote the book because of his access to the records. The Jews traditionally say that the person that really wrote it is Ezra or Nehemiah. Okay. Uh, but that's, not, that's the tradition of the Jews, that it's Ezra or Nehemiah. 
So um, we would probably have to go with the Jewish tradition because anything you know about the Jews, that they're very, very firm on their traditions. They, they're one of the nations that have kept their traditions and the history perpetually in records. And uh, so the, the belief is that it is Esther that wrote, I mean, um, es- Ezra or Nehemiah that wrote the book. But the person who seemed to have more access to the records would be Mordecai. Uh, either way, it's it's one of those three people that is believed to have written the book, even though there's no mention in the book that either of them wrote it. This just came to my mind as you were talking through that. Would it culturally, from what you're aware of, culturally, would women have been educated as in writing and reading in that time period? Uh, I, 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 I suspect that there will always be some women who are exceptional. Okay. Now, whether or not um, Esther was one of those, I'm not too sure. But I, as I have said before, and I'll say it again, it might offend people who are feminists and those who um, want to degender the Bible. Uh, and those who practice um, giving women the right to, to preach and be pastors, it might be offensive to those people. But it is very clear from reading the Old Testament and the New Testament that God has given the leadership role in the home and the church uh, to men. And therefore, I'm not surprised that you would have the books in the Bible written by men. This is God's plan from the beginning in the terms of the created order. That was not an accident. Uh, Paul talks about that in, in, in Timothy, that when God created it in that order, it was designed to show the headship of man and that he would be the leader. There are exceptions to the rule, uh, especially in the book of Judges, uh, where you find that the Lord uses a lady uh, in the book of Judges to be one of the judges. But again, she is using conjunction with a man who, because he failed to fulfill his role, uh, but he worked in partnership with her. But generally speaking, I think it is it would be, and and I think what we're trying to do, we're trying to reinterpret the Bible according to the cultural times in which we're living, because there's so much pressure, and we are perceived as male chauvinists, and uh, I guess the charge we brought against God that He's a male chauvinist too, but the fact of the matter is that we must not allow the cultural environment to dictate our interpretation of the Bible. What about the Book of Ruth? Well, in the, the Book of Ruth, this is an interesting book because the Book of Ruth is the only book in the Bible that is named after a Gentile. Remember that hmm. y- Ruth was a Moabite, yeah. So she's not really a Jewish person. Uh, there's also um, the only book that um, bears the name of one of our Lord's ancestors because Ruth falls in line. That's the whole purpose of the book, to trace the genealogy of Christ, because by the time you come to the end of the book of uh, Ruth, you have the name of David is mentioned to show you how the Davidic line, the lineage of David, that's the whole purpose of the book of Ruth. Um, uh, That book, there's no clarity as to who, again, wrote that book. Um, But it is believed, according to Jewish tradition, that Samuel wrote that book. Because that is a book where the events in that book occurred during the time of the judges. If you read the first chapter, you'll discover it occurred during the time of the judges. And um, the last mention, the, the person mentioned in, in the book of Ruth is David. So it doesn't go beyond the period of David. And the only person before David will be Samuel. So it's believed that Samuel is the author of that particular book. Um, but the, the main purpose of the book of Ruth is to give the genealogy of Christ, and the other purpose, of course, is to show you the concept of the kinsman redeemer, uh, that uh, Christ would be the kinsman redeemer. 
Um, so that is the, the authors uh, of those books. It's either Mordecai, Ezra, Nehemiah that wrote uh, Esther, and the Jewish tradition said it is Samuel that wrote the Book of Ruth, and that falls in line with the historical period as well. You're listening to That's Truth. Do you have a topic that you would like covered here on the program in a future week? We would love for your input. For you to give your input, you can send it to one two six eight seven eight two one four five four. That is WhatsApp or text two six eight seven eight two one four five four. Now, Pastor, as the closing music began to play last week, you were answering a question about if it's okay to use either the Dakes Topical Bible or the Schofield, the 1909 Study Bible. And you had said the Schofield was okay, but you were going to do some more study on the Dakes. Uh, do you have any further thoughts? Oh, yeah, I, I do. I'm, I'm glad that the person called in in the first case because it forced me to do some research on the Dakes Bible. And uh, what I found is, is kind of shocking, especially in connection with the person who wrote it. Now, I think if you're writing the Bible and you are uh, going to be a great expositor of Scripture, I do feel that the people should be aware of your character. I, I, I no doubt about like a pastor. I think a, a person's character, I think people ought to know about that. One thing that disturbed me about the uh, the writer, um, uh, Dakes, uh, his name was Fennis Jennings Dake, by the way. Uh, uh, he is, was part of the Assemblies of God, and he's also part of the Church of God. Um, the thing that bothered me about him, two, two things bothered me about him that I think the people ought to be aware of. In February 1937, um, he pleaded guilty to infidelity. And this is what he did. Um, he got a 16-year-old girl who he picked up uh, who was hiking, and he took her on a journey of 360 miles. When they investigated, they stayed in three different hotels. Uh, he had petting parties with her in those hotels. He was convicted and he admitted he was guilty and he spent six months in prison. He never once repented of that. Hmm. He blamed the devil for causing him to do that. So never once did he say he was sorry, never once he said it was a, a moral slip. That bothers me. That really bothers me because I think if a man is committed a sin, he's caught, he admits he's guilty. Um, he should at least acknowledge that and he should move on if he wants to move on but the idea that you've never admitted um, that uh, you, you're blaming the devil for something you've done to my mind that's a, 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 a that's one thing that bothers me about this same man who wrote um, this Bible the other thing that bothered me somewhat is that he always seemed to change a ministry every two years uh, I get worried about that as well so there's uh, for example um he was part of the Assemblies of God in 1937. He left that and became a pastor of the Church of God in 1942. Then he left that and he became an evangelist from 1947 to 1948. Uh, and then he, um, he started a radio program in 1949. Uh, and later on, um, he worked more again with the Church of God. So that that bothers me that you 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 change your ministry so frequently, and the third thing that that uh, really is of greater concern is the kind of doctrines that um, he has been engaged in. 
uh, he was working at one Bible school, and he had to resign because he was teaching a doctrine of a pre-Adamic civilization. What is meant by that? Well, that there was a pre-Adamic world, just that you got the the world of uh, there was a, a world of like 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 ours before Adam. There were beings before, right? Uh, the Bible doesn't teach that. I mean, there's no pre-Adamic race before. So he had to resign, uh, but that was one of the doctrines that he taught. Uh, other things that he's done, other doctrines that he's very... Uh, got the for example, the doctrine of the, uh, the Trinity. He believes that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each one of those have a body, a soul, and a spirit. God has a body, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He believes that uh, God is not omnipresent. God can only be one place at any one time because he is confined to a body. Uh, he believes as well that God doesn't know everything. God is not omniscient. God finds out because God dispatches agents, angels, to find out what's going on, then to report back to God. This is a Christian pastor. Yeah, this is a... <laughs> he also believed that uh, God is not really invisible. In the sense, God is only invisible because he's so far from us we can't see him. But if we can approach God, we will see God as a man. God has eyes, God has ears, God has a nose, God, God is about six feet tall. Uh, this is the kind of weird doctrine that would cause me to be gravely, gravely concerned about um, this particular person. So I, I would not in any way um, recommend because of that. Uh, those kind of deviant doctrines when you come to the Trinity, when you come to the, the attributes of God, that uh, He's not all-knowing, uh, that in itself should be a, a caution. The other thing that, that uh, is a concern to me, um, especially because of the time in which we're living, He seemed to have been have racial, um, race, racial uh, beliefs. He taught that the races should be separated now and remain segregated even in heaven. That is of great concern uh, to me. So I think for those reasons, I would not recommend that uh, a person use the, the, his Bible. The other, the other thing that we need to be aware of, the reason why we are not familiar with this Bible is because this is not a Bible that's used within the Baptist and the Reformed circles. This is a Bible that's basically used by Pentecostals, is used by the Charismatic Movement, and the, the people that use this Bible most is the Word of Faith people. Uh, like Benny Hinn and, and those kind of people. Those, oh. This is the Bible. That, most of the ideas that those guys are spouting are, actually came from this guy. They've given him credit that his, his, um, his, his Bible and his uh, systematic theology, which has to do with what, what is God's plan for man, those are the books that those guys have studied. And so a lot of their theology, a lot of their teaching, uh, when you hear them, you're hearing an echo of Dick's. So that is why we don't are not familiar with this Bible as much as as, as we should because it's not really within uh, the Baptist circle, but it's within the Pentecostal circle and within the Charismatic movement. Well, there's so many good study Bibles out there that why settle for something that's uh, on par with with that? Uh, just remind me real quickly what are some of the good study Bibles that. Well, you would the, suggest. there is the Schofield Study Bible. There's the uh, Rary Study Bible. Um, uh, those are two of the main ones that come to mind at, at this point in time. Um, Charles Stanley has a study Bible as well. Uh, Stanley, um, John MacArthur has a study Bible. 
there's the Thompson Chain Reference Study Bible. So there's about five or six of it that we could mention. But um, the one that a lot of people are using and find very useful today is the the Charles Wary Bible or the, the John MacArthur, the notes, etc., etc. The the Schofield that was mentioned in 1901, that the, the person who wrote in the, the note, um, I don't have a problem with the Schofield. The, prob- the problem is it's written so long, if, unless it's an updated version, because there are a lot of archaeological discoveries that have been made since then, that these modern uh, study Bibles would update you on these matters. So there's nothing wrong with the Schofield, but the, the thing is it it's may not be updated with the different data that needs to be put into the book to make the Bible more, more understandable. We have one more question that came in this last week, and then we will continue with our topic from last week. But the question is from Jason in St. Martin. Jason, thank you for sending this in. Pastor, what are your thoughts on the rapture on on the pre-rapture tribulation versus the rapture during the tribulation, what does the Bible say, and is either of these teachings wrong? No, re- repeat the part that the pre-what? Uh, pre-rapture tribulation versus rapture during the tribulation. I'm assuming, and I'm making an assumption yeah. here, that he means uh, pre-trib versus mid-trib when the rapture is going to happen. Okay, I thought that when I saw the question, when he showed me the question, I really thought he's talking about the pre-wrath rapture because that's, oh, okay. that's a position as well. I'm not okay. sure if that's what he meant. Okay. So, Jason, I'm not too sure if you're referring to, but if you read the question a little bit later, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, what, what are your thoughts on the pre-rapture tribulation versus rapture during tribulation? And then there's a little notation somewhere uh, later on. Um, what does the Bible say? Okay, is, okay. Is either. Yeah, I think, um, let me just be clear to those who might be listening. Uh, what is this biblical doctrine of the rapture? Let's be very clear what it is. The rapture is the future event when Christ returns and descends from heaven with the souls of the saints who have gone to be with him after death. When he descends, um, the body of the believer will rise and be transformed and join with the the soul. And uh, the believers who are alive will also be transformed and caught up together with the Lord, and so shall we ever be with him. That is what is taught in the book of Second Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. So it has to do with Christ returning to earth for his saints. The dead saints and the living saints will be taken to him uh, in glory. The passages that deal with the rapture are basically John chapter 14, verse 1 to 3, where Jesus said, I'll go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare, I will come again and receive you unto myself. The second Thessalonians section tells you exactly when he's coming to receive us. And then also 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 to 53, Paul said, I show you a mystery. Uh, we should all sleep, but we should all be changed. Those are the three main passages that deal with, uh, with the rapture. Um, the question that most people are concerned about and people debate about is at what juncture uh, does the rapture occur? Um, there are actually several views in terms of, of the rapture, uh, in terms of when the rapture would occur. Um, is it going to occur before the tribulation, which is called the pre-trib uh, rapture? Is it going to occur during the middle of the tribulation, which is called the mid-tribulation? Uh, is it going to play, occur after the tribulation, which would be the post-tribulation? Or, they've now two, got two, uh, two other views, uh, is it going to occur 
uh, at the f- final year of the tribulation period. Uh, this is called the pre-wrath. What what the, what the, what the, what is taught there is that be, some believers will go through the tribulation period, but just before the final phase of this final wrath, we will be raptured. Uh, those are the views that um, are held by some in regards uh, to the rapture. Uh, as far as I am concerned, um, I do not believe the believer is going to go through the the the, uh, the 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 wrath of God. I believe that the church is going to be raptured before uh, the wrath occurs, uh, and there are some very good reasons uh, for believing that. Uh, let me just share some of those uh, with you very clear, uh, quickly. First of all, the Bible promises that the church will be exempted from the coming wrath. Uh, in Thessalonians chapter one, second, First Thessalonians chapter one, um, I want to read a passage there. First uh, Thessalonians chapter one, and verses nine to ten. Um, you want me to read it? Yeah, yeah, read it for me, please. First uh, Thessalonians chapter one, verses nine and ten. For they themselves show us show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. I'm sorry, read read the second Thessalonians chapter second uh, nine. Thess- uh-huh, uh-huh. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine. Yeah, 10? nine and ten. Uh-huh. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Okay, and then if you read now 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 9 and 10, read that as well. 1 Thessalonians 9 and 10. 1? Yeah, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how we turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Okay, so we are going to be delivered from the wrath to come. So clearly the the church is promised that um, there's the Lord promises the church that we'll be delivered from the wrath to come. And if you look at verse chapter 5, verse 9 of the same book, uh, read that, Brother Nathan, please. Chapter 5, oh, verse 9. Verse 9. Verse 9 seems to be a key verse. <laughs> For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, you see that clearly we're not appointed as a church to wrath. That's the wrath that's coming during the tribulation period relates to two, two groups. It relates to the Jews who will purge. Mm-hmm. And we brought the faith. Uh, Paul talks about that in where he said that all Israel will be saved. One third of the Jewish nation will survive during the tribulation period, and they'll be brought to faith. But notice here clearly that the church is not appointed to wrath, and we are, we are, we are going to obtain salvation. And if you read uh, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, one of the promises that are given to the churches there, the message to the churches in Revelation, and if you look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 10, uh, Revelation 3.10 verse 10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Correct. That is, the church is promised that you'll be kept from that, 
that time of, of, of trial that's coming upon the earth. So uh, those Bible verses would indicate that God is not appointed us to wrath, He appointed us to salvation, that uh, we will escape uh, the period of testing coming upon the earth. Uh, we will escape that. That is one reason I believe that um, we will not go through the tribulation. The second reason for that is the place of the church in the book of Revelation. If you look for the word church in the book of Revelation, you'll find it that 19 times is mentioned in the first three chapters. And then the last time it is mentioned is in chapter 22, when the Bible said, and the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, where the church is a pleading now to humanity to repent and turn to Christ before this catastrophe comes. Between chapter 3 and chapter 22, the church is never mentioned in between there. And from chapter 4 to chapter 19, the tribulation period. So clearly, and then chapter 4, by the way, John is called up. And he's given all of these revelations. That, I believe, is a type of the church going up. John becomes a type of that. But the church is not mentioned between chapters 4 and chapter 19, which deals with tribulation. It's only mentioned in the first three chapters, the message to church. And in the final chapter, the church joins with Christ, calling men to come and accept and who thirst and who hunger. So in the book of Revelations, where it deals with the tribulation, chapter 4 to 19, the church is never once mentioned in there. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, so I think that that's a, a, but there's another thing that I believe that helps explain why the church will escape the, the tribulation. That has to do with Second Thessalonians chapter 2, where the Bible talks about the removal of the restrainer. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, read from verse number 6 to 9 for me for just a moment. Second Thessalonians chapter two, 2, 6 to 9. Yeah. And now ye know that with and and now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time for the mystery of iniquity doth already work only he now letteth you will let until he be taken out of the way and then shall the wicked be revealed whom the lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming even him whom come even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Okay. Now the problem you have with this is the problem with the King James Version. You see the word let? Okay. He let who would let. Yeah. That word means restrain. And that's the problem when you come to a passage like this because of the old English. Now that's what it meant in sixteen eleven. But if you read it in a modern version, you'll see that it means he who hinders or restrains will restrain. So there is a there's a force and a power that's restraining the time when the Antichrist would rise on the scene and all chaos breaks out on planet Earth and we have a time of degradation and catastrophe that like we never had before. But currently there is a power and a force restraining the revelation of the Antichrist. That restraining force must have enough power to hold back the power of evil. Now, if you look in the text as well, as well, you'll see that in, in, in the text, um, in verses 6, uh, if you read that, you'll find it says, Now ye know what withholdeth. See that? Yeah. Now, that's neuter. The what there is neuter. So whatever is, is withholding is neuter. But if you look at verse number um, verse number 7, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he 
Okay. Now it is a person you're dealing with. Now here's where this is where I believe it's going to happen. What is about the He is the Holy Spirit. The what is the church. So the Holy Spirit through the church is restraining the evil in our generation. But when the church is taken out, the Holy Spirit goes with the church and all hell breaks loose on planet earth because there's no longer any restraining power. Now remember in uh, Genesis chapter 6, the Lord said, My spirit will not always thrive with man. He was holding down the corruption, uh, but he said it's not going to always strive with man to restrain man. So the Holy Spirit is the restrainer. But also remember the church is said to be the what? The salt of the earth. See? So I believe that this restraining power that's going to be removed, that now gives access to evil and the rise of the Antichrist, is when the church is raptured. When the church is raptured, the believer has the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit goes and there's no longer the restraining power. Then the man of sin will be revealed. So uh, remember the tribulation comes after the man of sin is revealed. We'll talk about that um, shortly. But so I believe that uh, the rapture will occur before the tribulation takes place, and it's because the rapture occurs, it now becomes the occasion for God to vent His wrath on planet Earth and to deal with the Jewish nation and bring them to repentance and faith. But two-thirds of the Jewish people would be destroyed, one-third would remain. And so Paul says all would be saved in the book of Romans. So that's another reason why I believe uh, the rapture will occur. And we will not go through the tribulation. But here's another thing. There's a distinction between the rapture and the, and the revelation, what is called the rapture and the second coming. The second coming has two phases. Christ comes with his church, for his church, to the rapture. We go to be with him. When he comes back to judge the earth, he comes with his saints. So clearly we are already in heaven, he's coming back with us. Mm -hmm. And just during that time, the tribulation takes place. And then the third thing, that I, the fourth thing I think is important is, if the believer was going to, the, go, to go through the, tri the tribulation period, how would it become the blessed hope of the church? I mean, how could it be blessed that you're going to go through and they be presented? Everywhere in the Bible where the rapture is mentioned, is mentioned to give the believer hope and to comfort one another. What comfort can there be? What hope can there be if we're going through the tribulation period? It makes yeah. absolutely no sense whatsoever. And then the last argument, of course, is that the rapture is presented in the Bible as eminent. That we should always be watching. It can happen any time. Now, if we are going to go through the tribulation period, how could it be eminent? The tribulation would have to ha happen, then we'll know it happened. So we can never present the, gospel, the, 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 the rapture as something that's eminent at any moment. The Bible is told to watch it, ever know the time is coming. So for those five reasons, uh, I do not believe the church is going to go through uh, the tribulation period. I believe the church will be raptured before the tribulation period, and then God pours out His wrath. Remember, the tribulation period has mainly to do with Israel and the world. It has nothing to do with the church, basically. The rapture has to do with the church, but the tribulation is when God is dealing with Israel, purging Israel, and dealing with the earth, punishing planet Earth for all the evil that is being perpetuated. And by the way, if you think the world is bad today, when that restraining power is taken off, there's no longer any church, there's no longer Holy Spirit restraining man, that is when we will see what real hell is like. And that's when you read the book of Revelations, you see why there's so much wrath of God, because man now vents his sin, there's no control, no restraint. Yeah. As a matter of fact, you go through the, the book of Revelation, you would think that when God begins to punish man, one-third of the, 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 the fruit, the, the trees are going to be uh, destroyed. One-third of the sea, one-third of the, every, uh, the, the uh, water of the earth. You would think that man would repent. 
But the Bible says that they blaspheme God. They get angry at God. See, It's like people today, when there's a big catastrophe, uh, rather than be glad that God saved them and they didn't get go through that particular predicament, they think God is a tyrant, so they're, they're angry at God because he's allowed. How could God let How could God alone let that happen? Yeah. Well, during the tribulation period, that's exactly the kind of thing that will happen. Men will now get angry at God because it becomes very obvious that this is this is divine power. Because the things, the catastrophes that are coming upon planet Earth cannot be extent, explained in human terminology. These are all supernatural acts, and the extent of them are so severe. Nothing. The Bible says there has never been. There is no. Never, and there will never be a time like this on planet Earth. This is when God, who has been silent for so long, speaks in wrath like you've never seen it before. But is that fair of God to judge the people that are alive at that point when he's been gracious to us in this time period? Well, put it this way. We have a responsibility for our generation. Uh, our job is to get the glad tidings out. Our job is to get the, the gospel to these people. Um the 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 body of truth that is available today for the average man is overwhelming. I could mention so many books that anybody can read right now that would provide answers to all the issues of evolution. Uh, I mean, the proof for God and the proof that the Bible is true is so overwhelming today, and it's so available to everybody that it's only a person who's willfully choose to be ignorant that would not investigate these facts for himself. So God has given us more light than we've ever had before. And the more light we have, the more severe judgment. We're told in the book of uh, in, in the book of Matthew, be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those cities where Jesus actually ministered and performed miracles. He said, if these things were done <laughs> in Sodom and Gomorrah, they were repented. Yeah. But people became so hardened, and this is a hardened generation. This is a generation that's turned it back on God, a generation that wants to live their own is a narcissistic generation that's only concerned about the pleasure and the delights and they don't want to be restrained or controlled they want total autonomy and that is leading ultimately to final chaos uh, but how many years has God given people to repent you remember that in um, the book of Genesis before he destroyed the Canaanites he said uh, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet ripe and they were given 430 years to repent so from Genesis until Joshua went in to destroy all of them, they were given 430 years. They did not repent. How much time do we need? Hmm. You're listening to That's Truth. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 kilohertz AM, 92.3 megahertz FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. You can listen to us online anywhere in the world. If you're taking a trip to Canada or to Europe, wherever it may be, or if you have a family member, encourage them to tune in and listen to That's Truth. Listen to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.06. Pastor, did you have anything else to mention in relation to Jason's question? Yeah, I just want to make a little, um, clarify a little bit. We talked about the rapture, but what do we mean by the tribulation period? Um, uh, the tribulation period really is a period of judgment uh, where God vents his wrath on planet Earth. And the book of Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 talks about it. It begins when the Antichrist signs a peace pact with Israel in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, for a, uh, what is called a week or uh, a, a period of seven. Um, and it will end when Christ returns. 
But the tribulation period begins when that peace pact with Israel is signed. And then we are told that midway during that, that peace pact, Daniel chapter 9, the, the, the Antichrist will break the covenant with Israel. And then the, you've got the final phase of the tribulation period. If you read the book of Revelations, and perhaps you'll do that sometime, there are two phases to the, 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 the tribulation. There's the first phase, first two and three and a half years, and then the last two and a half years. The, 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 uh, the line that drives a wedge between those two periods is the breaking of the covenant between the Antichrist and the Jews. And Thessalonians tell us that the Antichrist will set up an idol of himself in the temple of God, and he will proclaim that he is God. And when you read Revelation chapter 13, uh, and, and so on, you find that it actually doves still into what Thessalonians says. So we're talking about a, a seven-year period of severe wrath God pouring out on planet Earth in respect to the nations of the world and respect to the nation of Israel. Uh, so that is what we mean by the, the tribulation period. There are a lot of terms in the Bible that... Um, Describe the tribulation period using you know, a lot of different terms in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. For example, it is called the birth pangs. You find that in Isaiah chapter 21 and verse 3, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 17 to 18, Isaiah chapter 67, verse 7, and also Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 31, and Micah chapter 4, verse 10. It's also called the day of the Lord. Uh, when God comes back to judge planet Earth, that is Obadiah chapter fi- uh, verse fifteen, Joel chapter one verse fifteen, Joel chapter t- two verse one, eleven verse thirty one, Joel chapter three verse fourteen, Amos five eighteen, Zephaniah one seven, and Zechariah fourteen. There are more than that. It's also called the great and terrible day of the Lord, Malachi chapter four verse nine. It's called the day of wrath in Zephaniah one seventeen. It's called the day of distress in Zephaniah one fifteen. It's called the day of the Lord's wrath in Zephaniah one eight. It's called the day of desolation in Zephaniah one fifteen. Uh, it's also called the day of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah chapter thirty verse seven. It's called the day of darkness and gloom Zephaniah one fifteen. Amos chapter five verse thirteen. It's called the the day of alarm. Zephaniah 1.16 It's called the day of the Lord's anger Zephaniah 1.16 And it's called the day of destruction Joel chapter 1 verse 15 There are other terms in the New Test- Old Testament For example it's called the day of distress and anguish Daniel 12.1 And uh, Zephaniah 1.15 The day of indignation of, of God's anger Isaiah chapter 26 verse 2 And Daniel chapter 11 verse 36 It's called the time of fire of his jealousy Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 18 when you come to the New Testament a lot of terms that are also used for it it's called the day that's coming 1 Thessalonians 5.4 it's called the day of the Lord 1 Thessalonians 5.2 it's called the day of wrath 1 Thessalonians 5.9 Revelation 11.18 it's called the wrath of God Revelation 15 it's called the wrath of the Lamb Revelation chapter 6 verse 17 it's called the hour of trial Revelation 3.15 it's called the tribulation Matthew chapter 24 verse 29 Mark chapter 13 verse 24 and it's also called the Hour of Judgment, Revelation 14.7. It's called the Birth Pangs in Matthew chapter 24, verse 8. All of those are different terms that are used for the same, the same period of time. It's a time that, you know, it's mentioned so frequently in the Old Testament and so frequently in the New Testament that clearly it's a time of warning. This time is coming. Uh, there's a delusion to think that planet Earth is going to get better. Every biblical prediction about planet Earth is that 
evil men and seducers will rank worse, and things are not going to get better. There's no government that's going to save us. There's no UN nation that's going to save us. There's no America going to save us. This planet Earth is headed to a massive catastrophe, and we are minutes away from midnight. As you were reading those terms for several minutes there, I began thinking none of those terms is something that describes something that I want to go through. Uh, very sobering. Uh, yeah. The, the thing, too, Nathan, is that the, the, the expression is a woman in travail, a woman in birth pains. And you know that you start off with sl- small pains. Then as it gets worse, you get more severe and get more intense. That's why in the book of Revelations, you got the trumpets, then you got the seals, then you got the bowls. The bowls are so severe, the final, it's like birth pains. That's what he's talking about. You're going to gradually, gradually, and then the, the punishment get more severe and more severe. Uh, if you think about it, uh, and you really dwell upon it, um, and that's why I said the information is not hidden, it's there. Men are prepared to study everything except look into the scriptures, see what is what the future is like. So it's not that we are ignorant. Uh, we are ignorant in the sense that we are willfully ignorant. But the information is available, and men ought to pay heed to God. When God speaks, uh, He ought to be given a voice because He's our Creator, He's our Maker, and He's going to be our Judge. So you've answered Jason's question as far as what does the Bible say. He finishes up by saying, is either of these teachings wrong? What are your well, thoughts? Well, I, I, I believe that the proper um, understanding is a pre-tribulation um, theory, basically. Uh, but I would say to you that there are some good men. So the guy the guy that did the pre-WAF uh, hold that position, a guy called Rothenthal, he's a Jew. Excuse me. Um, he is... He had to leave his position, by the way, of the, I think it was the, I forgot what, he was head of the um, a Jewish... Um, Mission board. Yeah, and he was a part of the evangelical group, Baptist kind of thing. And then when he came up with this pre-wrath that the believer would go to the tribulation period, and just before this final phase, the bowls, they'd be raptured. So he, he goes to four-fifths of the tribulation, but the last fifth, he, he uh, he's taken out. Um, he had to resign because he was head of this this uh, this mission board, but he's not a false teacher in the sense that he's not an apostate. It's just that he differ on this matter of interpretation. And let me just say to those who are listening, um, the, the the area of prophecy, uh, we can't pontificate with absolute certainty on these matters. We can just take biblical principles and biblical teaching and come to a conclusion. But we must not make whether a person is a pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib or, or pre-rapturist. Uh, we must still understand he's a brother in Christ. Uh, he may differ from us on the area of prophecy, but he's still a believer in Christ. So we ought to be very careful that we don't label these people as apostates. It's just that their interpretation of this this matter. And prophecy is, it will only become clearer and clearer as the events begin to unfold. Like, uh, There's no doubt in my mind that the rapture is very soon when you look at what Christ said in Matthew chapter 24 and the signs that precede it the earthquakes the the pestilence and, and those kind of wars and rumors of wars I think there uh, and the fact that the Jews returned in 1948 and Jerusalem will be uh, trodden underfoot until the time of the Gentiles be complete interesting 1967 the Jews took back uh, Jerusalem for the first time in over 2,000 years in our time President Trump had now made Jerusalem the capital of Israel. So the Bible says that uh, the, the, the Lord will return 
and uh, but it will occur after the time of the when Jerusalem is no longer trodden underfoot. That the Jews have full control of of Jerusalem, hmm. and I think that Trump's move in that direction is very very significant. Uh, and I don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future, but clearly. Uh, Israel now has a capital. She never had Jerusalem the capital before. Tel Aviv was the capital. Now Jerusalem is the capital. To my mind, you have a significant prophetic um, truth being fulfilled uh, by uh, President Trump, who declares now that we were. And then um, Brazil is also going to recognize as a capital. And I suspect that others will follow suit. And the other thing that Trump did, of course, is to make the Golan Heights. The uh, give the Jews the right to the Golan Heights. Uh, things are happening so fast that we may be caught unawares if we're not. Just by saying, watch, watch, watch. Look at Israel, read your newspapers, and see what is happening, because that time is drawing near. We'd only caught unawares. So, would you separate from a brother in Christ over difference on prophecy? It depends. If he didn't believe in the rapture, probably it would. Okay. Uh, but in terms of the time frame, yeah. uh, I I would not I would not make that an issue. Uh, however, I I would say this: um, take within a Baptist circle. If we had a Bible school, for example, or Bible college, we would certainly want um, the person who is the president or who is the leader of the school to hold to the premillennial position because that is the position that we really believe is the best understanding of scripture because you've got to be very careful you don't want confusion in an institution that trains pre- preachers uh, so we've got to be very watchful in, in regards to those matters pastor we have a question that has come in as you are answering jason's question by the way jason thank you for that whatsapp message over the weekend i trust that you're you got an answer to your question uh pastor we had a whatsapp that came in from a listener in antigua Thanks for asking my question on the Dakes Topical Study Bible. I got one on the Logos 2 ship and stopped using it after the weird new things I saw in it and went back to the Schofield Study Bible. The question I have for tonight is, what role do angels have in the life of a believer or even in the world today? And the reason I ask is because so many false prophets claim that they have messages from angels to ratify their claims and also some text in scripture about angels ministering spirit being ministering spirits love your program it is a definite blessing that is a topic i would like to explore um at an, a f- i can answer the question very quickly no but in terms of what the role of angels are currently in respect first of all they have a role in respect to believers the book of hebrews says that they are ministering spirits to those who are heirs of eternal life so angelic beings are involved in the life of the believer in terms of protecting the believer the book of psalms said the angel lord accomplished among them that that fear him so they have a definite ministry in terms to the believer. It's interesting that the writers, the uh, the caller should uh, should indicate that because I'm currently doing a study in our church on angels. Uh, once, um, you know, so I'm doing a systematic study on angels, and I think we've done two studies so far on it. So that's why I said I would like to do it. But it, they do have a role in respect to the believer, and especially in bringing the believer to faith. You remember in the Book of Acts when Philip is having a tremendous ministry in Samaria 
And the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and tell him, leave Samir and go to Gaza and meet an Ethiopian eunuch. That is the kind of ministry. This Ethiopian eunuch would be is coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and uh, God used an angelic being to speak to, to Philip to go and minister to Gaza so that this Ethiopian eunuch would be saved. When Cornelius was uh, searching for truth, and he was praying. An angel of the Lord appeared to Peter and said, Go to the house of Cornelius, told exactly what to do. So notice the ear the, the minister of those who will be heirs of eternal life. It's involved in the conversion of believers. Um the other thing uh, about angelic beings they're somehow involved in answering the prayer of the believer. Remember in Daniel? When Daniel was praying for the interpretation, what does this mean? He had this vision, and he prayed to the Lord. And Daniel wasn't prayer wasn't answered for twelve weeks, uh, for, for um, uh, two weeks, in the book of Daniel. And then when the angel finally came to Daniel and gave Daniel an expression, he said, "Daniel, the Lord heard you for the very first time you prayed, but the prince of Persia withstood me." There's a, a battle going on in the in the uh, supernatural world, the invisible world, where just like God has angelic beings that are involved in as his agents in doing his work, Satan has counter forces. So there's a great battle going on, and we're told that Michael the archangel had to come and uh, deliver him from the, the, the prince of Persia so that he can bring his, his answer to Daniel's prayer. So clearly they involve in answering the prayer of believers as well. Uh, but the other thing that we need to be aware of, that not all angels are good angels, and that's the secret of this whole thing, and this is where the deception, I believe, comes in. Uh, um, Paul, in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, I believe, uh, warns about Satan himself disguising himself as an angel of light. Uh, and this is where all of the, the, um, a lot of the cults, for example, the Mormons, talk about Moroni the angel and what heretical doctrine there is in the Book of Mormon, but yet they're claiming Muhammad uh, that wrote the, the, the Book of Islam, not, not wrote it, but uh, from which the, the Quran is written. Yep. Again, he attributes the fact that uh, Gabriel, the angel, appeared to him. But Gabriel could not could not be the real Gabriel because everything in the Quran basically contradicts everything in the Bible. So clearly an angel is in, involved. Uh, so we got to be watched with people who are making claims that... Um, they might have seen something, but if what they are teaching is contrary to what the Bible says, you know one thing, it is not an angel from God, it's an angel from hell that has given that, that particular heresy. And remember in, in uh, Timothy chapter 4, Paul talks about the doctrines of demons in the last days, uh, giving heed to seducing spirits. That's what those seducing spirits, they are fallen angelic beings use what we call demons, used by Satan to infiltrate the church and to infiltrate uh, people who want to get into uh, heretical teachings and mislead people away from the truth. Paul talks about that in, in the book of Timothy, uh, about doctrine of demons and uh, seducing spirits. And he says it will happen in the last time. So, there are angelic beings involved in ministry. Uh, those who make any kind of claim that they have seen angels or have had an encounter with angels, all I would say to the person who uh, makes those kind of claims, if what they say is contrary to what God has revealed in His Word, they are not in contact with uh, the angels of God. They're in contact with the satanic demonic powers that reveal themselves and pretend to be angels of light. Pastor, we just got a WhatsApp message from Jason in St. Martin. 
Uh, thank you for answering my question. There is a Baptist pastor on YouTube that goes by the tag Sanderson1611 that preached the church will go through the tribulation. He has a bio or movie on YouTube named After the Tribulation, the Pre-Tribulation Rapture Fraud Exposed. I like listening to his sermons. Have you heard of him? No, it's kind of a novelty. I never heard of the guy. what I would do, though, is probably to take note of what you just said and uh, listen to one of his recordings to see exactly. Uh, also look at his background. You know, I'm not too sure if he's Pentecost, Baptist, uh, Reformed theologian. I have not got the slightest idea, but I will do some research on him to find out exactly uh, what he believes and see what is his basis for his argument. Uh, just a little information here. It's Pastor Stephen Anderson. Uh, from Faithful Word Baptist Church in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, A phrase from his doctrinal statement is, we believe that the rapture will take place after the tribulation, but before God pours out his wrath on the earth, we reject dispensationalism. Okay, he probably is either a Reformed theologian, because most Reformed theologians as well don't have a place for Israel. So if they don't have a place for Israel, and the tribulation is clearly God dealing with the nation of Israel to mm-hmm. purge them and bring them back to faith. Uh, you can see, quite frankly, that that's probably a person who's either a Reformed theologian or the, the word faith, the, the ministry there, something called the word, isn't it? Uh, faithful Word Baptist Church. Yeah, those kind of concepts, I, I'm not too sure if I should associate them with the Word of Faith movement. But the Word of Faith movement is, is not a Baptistic movement, and uh, they have a lot of weird doctrines. I don't have to um, spell them out here, but I could probably do a program on them. Oh, the other thing I should have mentioned, um, now that he mentioned, uh, this is just the same guy, the Jakes Bible. T.D. Jakes? No, no, the Jakes oh. oh, Bible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He is one person that also uh, believes in you should be rich. Prosperity gospel. Hmm. Uh, he advocates that, and you should be healthy. You shouldn't be sick. What am I, I doing wrong? <laughs> <laughs> by the way, he dies of Parkinson's disease. <laughs> wow. And by the way, he sees he he believes that uh, healing is in the atonement, and that the same amount of faith you have to get saved to get you saved, you should have that same amount of faith to be healed. So if you're not healed, you don't have the right faith to to be saved. So very weird. That's why I said I'm glad that this person, by the way, that wrote him before, yeah. is discerning enough that when they start to read this strange teaching, he's willing to put aside that, that Bible, but be very watchful. But Jason, I will um, I will definitely do some research on this guy and listen to one or two of his programs to see exactly what his arguments are, and I'll probably try to respond to that sometime, maybe next time. You're listening to That's Truth, live interactive call-in program here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse every Tuesday evening from 7.30 until 9 p.m., and then it's rebroadcast on Saturday afternoons. Did you know that you, if you miss a program, you can go and listen to it online? All you have to do is go to Google and type in That's Truth Podcast, and it will pop up as The first thing that is listed there, and you can go and listen to all of the previous episodes. We've categorized them by topic, so if you are looking for a specific topic, you can quickly find what you are in search of. Thank you for those of you who have already interacted with us on the program tonight. Again, if you have a topic that you would like us to cover in the future, or if you have a specific question as to what the Bible says or why the Bible doesn't say something, 
please give us a call. The phone number is 1-268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your questions to 1-268-782-1454. When was the last time you encouraged someone to tune in and join the program, That's Truth? Let me encourage you to WhatsApp or call or just mention it to someone at work tomorrow. Encourage them to listen to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Pastor Murphy, I think we got our preliminary material out of the way. Now we're going to return to our study from last week that we started the topic of how to properly study the Bible and how to interpret it. And we have right at 30 minutes left in the program. So if you can real briefly review and remind me why it is that we should be studying the Bible. Well, we uh, gave seven reasons why we studied the Bible. Uh, We talked about becoming effective servants of Christ, uh, a workman that uh, rightly divides the word of truth. You're going to be effective. We talked about the matter that it will enrich your spiritual life. The Bible is said to be the meat and the, the milk of the believer's life. Uh, we said uh, you'll be, be a strong believer, First uh, John. I write on you, young men, because you're strong, because the Word of God abides in you. We talked about the matter it will help you with your assurance of your, your salvation. Uh, it'll give you confidence in prayer. Christ made it very clear that if we abide in Him and abide in the Word, we should ask or what He will. And then we talked about the matter that it helps to restrain sin and cleanse the sin in the believer's life. Uh, we said that it gives joy, John chapter 15, verse 11. It, it gives you peace. Uh, and then it guides you to help you to make decisions in life. Um, and it uh, enables you to articulate your faith, give a reason for the hope that's in you. And then, of course, uh, Psalm 1 and Joshua 1, it, it, it leads to success, not just in your spiritual life, but also in every aspect of your life. And the one that I um, should have mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned it, it really provides you an opportunity to find answers to all of these issues that are going on, the contemporary issues that there's so many people are not certain about. The Bible has an answer to abortion. It has an answer about same-sex. It has an answer about uh, homosexuality. It has a matter about lesbianism. Uh, it has answers to those issues. It has an answer to what is marriage. And if you know the Bible, you'll be able to answer a lot of the contemporary and give. And by the way, let me just say this. We don't have to be um, haters because we hold a position. Our position is to be held strong because we believe the Bible. So because somebody, because I disagree with a person, uh, and I make my, 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 my disagreement public, uh, this has nothing to do with hating the person or, or whatever. Uh, it has to do with it. this is wrong, it is evil, it is corrupt, it's aberrant, and that's what the Bible says, and that's what it is. Uh, we must not, let's, the worst thing we can do is to help people remain comfortable in their sin. In order for people to be convicted of sin, we've got to bring the weight of the law and the weight of the word upon people's lives. That's why the law was given, by the way, to let sin be known what sin is. We can't uh, allow people to continue in a lifestyle and uh, be fearful of being denigrated or being um, rebuked or being labeled, and therefore we hold our silence. We speak truth to issues and we let the Word of God do the convicting. And let me just remind you again, unless we speak the Word to these matters, there's no conviction. 
It's the Holy Spirit that needs the sword of the Spirit. How is the Holy Spirit going to work in a person's life if that person is not made aware of what the Bible teaches? He needs to at least know what the Bible teaches so the Holy Spirit can use that as a sword. So let us not be silent on these matters and let's not be intimidated and fearful of making biblical statements. Let us not be cowards. Let us be courageous and take a stand on these matters. But we're supposed to show the love of Christ, right? Of course. We, the Bible says speaking the truth in love, right? So, but it's not loving to offend someone, to tell them that they're wrong. Well, read the book of Proverbs and you'll see what offense is. <laughs> If a person is wrong, they're wrong. It just has to do uh, sometimes how you do it. Uh, if you came to our church or any church that is preaching the word and you're dealing with any East, you take the matter of your teaching from Corinthians, you're teaching from Thessalonians, and you're dealing with the subject of adultery or fornication, you've got to deal with it from a biblical perspective. Mm. Uh, that doesn't mean that because a person comes into the church, you want to find out, well, he's a fornicator, is he an adulterer, is he a lesbian, whatever, so that we, we don't speak to offend him. The church is a place where truth is spoken, and we declare the whole counsel of God. Who gets offended, that's their problem. But we give them hope by saying to them, this is wrong, this is evil, here's the way of deliverance. It can be found in Jesus Christ. So we give them hope in spite of speaking truth to them. The second thing that you covered last week is how do we prepare to study the Bible? Can you quickly review that? Well, I, I mentioned uh, several things. I talked about the fact that you have to schedule your Bible study if you're talking about Bible study. It not, must not be a haphazard, hit-and-miss, spasmodic, uh, sporadic way of doing things. You've got to decide that you're going to do a Bible study. You need some time. Decide if you are a morning person. I mentioned an evening person, a night person. Uh, you need a hunk of time, not a 15 minutes time. You need at least an hour to two hours to do Bible study. Now, your devotion, I talked about that. Your quiet time is something different. Normally, 15 to 20 minutes, you read the Bible, find a passage and you, you pray, whatever it is. But when you talk about serious Bible study, it requires some time. So you need to schedule uh, a study time. The other thing, you have to try and select um, a book you're going to study or a topic or a doctrine. I'm not too sure what you want to do, but if you want to do a Bible study, you select a book. I mentioned last time, I would recommend you going to the New Testament first. Another person suggested we go to start maybe the Old Testament Genesis. My problem with that, as I said, is that we're living in a generation that is biblically illiterate, and uh, I think to start with a small book in the in the New Testament is probably better. We talked about First John. You mentioned James. Uh, the Gospel of John is another good book. But you need to decide. You got to start somewhere, and you need to. And then you have to keep a notebook. Um, don't trust your memory. Don't trust your mind. And those precious gems and truths that you discover, you want to document them because they may lead you to some book in the future or some ideas in the future. You want to uh, re uh, conserve what you've studied. And then I talked about having the right tools. Every workman needs right tools. And we, we started elaborating on that, which was the ne next topic. And then we talked about um, spending some time in, in prayer. As you approach Scripture, you ask God for um, wisdom and understanding. You ask that the Holy Spirit would cleanse you and he'll illuminate your mind as you study the Word. You pray for a heart of obedience, a spirit of surrender, and you pray for opportunities to take what you've learned and apply it to your life and the life of others. And then the other thing was, of course, uh, try to utilize song, biblical principles of interpretation. That's basically uh, those six things that help you how to get started. You referenced the tools. Yeah, we talked about the tools, and uh, we made it very clear that if you are going to 
um, enjoy Bible study and you don't want it to be too tedious or burdensome or too difficult, you need to have uh, tools, proper tools. And we talked about so many tools that are available to the English-speaking world. Uh, we talked about having a good study Bible, and we mentioned uh, the Thompson Chain Reference, the Rary Study Bible, the Open Bible, the Schofield Bible, uh, the Holman's Bible, the John MacArthur Bible, Study Bible. You need a good study Bible. We talked about um, needing uh, that study Bible, by the way, we recommend that um, you try to link it to at least the King James Version or the renewed or the, the, the uh, new King James Version because the other tools that you're going to use are linked to the King James Version. Uh, if you don't have the uh, um, uh, have another Bible that's not linked to the King James Version, you're going to have a, find it difficult using the Strong's Concordance or the Young's Concordance, which I think you will need. So you need, in addition to a study Bible, you need a modern version um, as well to help you to understand a lot of difficult words. The one we had today was in Thessalonians, he that let would let. I mean, you let me not allow. No, but <laughs> it meant then to hinder and restrain. And that's why I say that there is, is a need for the updating of the Bible periodically, including the King James. Um, you can't have these old archaic words that miss. A person reading that cannot understand how let can mean restrain and, and hinder, <laughs> because that's what it meant back then. Language changes. That's why there's a need for periodic updating of uh, particular versions. But you need a good version. I'll be talking about the, American, uh, the English Standard Version or the uh, the American Standard Version or the New King James. Then we talk about the exhaustive concordance. You need one of those. This is that list all the Bible verses. In the back of it, it has the root of the the Greek words and the Hebrew words. It gives you the meaning of those words, how those words are used, how many times they're used in the Bible. You can trace a word uh, by using your concordance. We talk about Strong's and we talked about Young's analytical concordance. We recommended Young's because of the arrangement, but either will do. Then we talk about a Bible dictionary or encyclopedia. This is a, a book that explains words and topics and customs and traditions. It gives you historical background, geographic background, cultural background, archaeological background to the book, uh, etc. And it will give you a small uh, summary of, of uh, main Bible characters and, and they'll give you the biography. And the encyclopedia is a little bit more exhausted but performs basically the same job. And then we talked about... Um, Topical Bibles, and we mentioned two of those. They talk about um, Nave's Topical Bible and Torrey's Topical Bible. This is where it, rather than give you a list of Bible verses, it deals with topics. If you're dealing, for example, with the rapture or the trinity, or you're dealing with love or faith, it would give you all the verses that would relate to that, even though that word may not be there. Uh, it relates to that. That's where the topical Bible comes in study. And then we talk about a Bible handbook. And we talk about Haley's Bible handbook and Unger's Bible handbook. This is a combination of an encyclopedia and a commentary in a concise form. It would go through the Bible itself and try to give you a brief interpretation, but it will also give you uh, the background. Um, it's almost like a running commentary, give you archaeological maps, charts, etc., etc. Uh, very, very useful. And then we talked about word studies. And this is when you want to really find out what a word means. You want to study how that word is used. Uh, Vine's word studies is important. Kenneth Weiss word studies. And then there's, for the Old Testament, there's William, Willis, uh, William Wilson, who has the Old Testament word studies and the Dictionary of Old Testament Words by Aaron Pink. This is done by Kriegel. Those are, uh, you need that uh, if you want to know what the original word meant and how that was used in the contemporary times. Uh, it would help you. And then, 
we didn't get to this one. This is the final one we talk. It's a really a, what you call a Bible commentary. You you need that, and this is a, um, a scholarly collection of explanatory notes and interpretation of the text for you. The thing about the commentary, though, is that you should go to the commentary after you've done your study, because the temptation to take a shortcut, rush right to the commentary, so you never really discover anything for yourself. So you have to try to understand that the commentary is there to test. And it's always good that if you come up with an interpretation, to try to compare that interpretation with what others have said. You are not the embodiment of truth. I'm not the embodiment of truth. The Holy Spirit indwells you. The Holy Spirit indwells other people. And we must not try to reinvent the wheel either. And what I mean by that is that God has given men wisdom over the years, who spent years, sometimes 10, 20, 30 years, preparing commentaries. And uh, we, we th- this is part of the treasury that God has given to the church. So it's useful why we're trying to do our own study, that we can compare our results with what that person has written to see um, if we contradict that or we're in line with that or if we've got different insights. We just want to keep a check on ourselves that we don't run away in our imagination to come up with an interpretation that's really not there. So we need to, to try to bear that um, in mind. So those are the tools. By the way, the commentaries, I would recommend that you get a single volume first, and that will do, do both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can get that by, um, there is the Matthew Henry single volume you can get. There's also the New Bible Commentary by Erdman's. There is the Jameson Fawcett and Brown uh, single volume, and I like this one by the way for a single volume, the Jensen Foster Brown, and then there's the Wycliffe uh, commentary written uh, done by Moody. Those are single volumes. As you get further into your Bible study, you might want to do multiple volumes. You can get the Tyndale New Testament commentaries. You can get the Tyndale Old Testament commentaries published by InterVarsity. You can get the Jason and Voss, uh, Fawcett and Brown three volumes, or you can get the Matthew Henry, which is five volumes. There are so many of them, but uh, you need to get, as you're starting out, you need to limit your expense for your library, and uh, but later on you can start to add commentaries uh, uh, to this. I recently was listening to a preacher online who had been mentored by John MacArthur, uh-huh. and he said one of the most important lessons that he learned from John MacArthur was the fact that it's... A profound preacher is not someone who finds something new in Scripture. It's someone who takes Scripture and just explains it rather than trying to, he said as a young preacher, he was trying to to find something new and exciting and and be that guy that would have that discovery tied to his name. And there came a point where he realized and John MacArthur brought to his attention, no, your purpose as a preacher is just to take God's Word and explain it and yeah. share it. Yeah. That is, I, I think that's the, 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 the greatest need, I would say, within the Caribbean region. The paucity of expository preachers. Uh, a lot of preachers are topical preachers. And uh, But I agree with you, and I think that is exactly true with Dr. John MacArthur. The systematic going to um, preaching the Word. You notice that all of his commentaries are actually messages that he preached, yeah. basically. Uh, and it's a fascinating, I mean, his, his, his writings are just a fascinating body of truth uh, that is worth having by any. Same thing, uh, my favorite, of course, is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I am an echo of him, I must tell you that. But I, I do, I, I read his books, and I find he's a fascinating, where I differ with him a lot, those in Bible prophecy, because he's a Reformed theologian who has no place for Israel. But in, in, in terms of expounding the scriptures, fantastic uh, uh, writer and speaker. 
I, I normally recommend to pastors that you find a person that you think like I know I don't say they think like you because you don't have the brain they have basically. So I find somebody that I think that I I think like them rather than they think like me, right? But find somebody that you feel comfortable with and somebody that you really really uh, you, um, in harmony with your style and concentrate. And of course, you can read other books and other and listen to other sermons. But find someone that who's, who who your mind, your thought, your thought pattern follows along that line, and uh, I think that will help you to improve your preaching. Pastor, there's a verse in Scripture, and I lost the reference, but I think it's in maybe Second Peter, uh, where it talks about no Scripture is of any private interpretation. Yeah. If that's the case, why do I need to be individually and privately studying God's Word? Because isn't that saying that Scripture should be taught openly, and that's... Or no, the, 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 the meaning there in the book of Peter, when it said there's no Scripture of any private interpretation, what that really means is that uh, there's no one single passage uh, uh, that you can you can just come to a, a passage and just interpret it. You have to compare scripture with scripture, and the fact that it's a, a not private interpretation means, of course, that it is God. That the scripture didn't come because Peter decided to write the scripture or Paul decided to write the scripture. Uh, what is basically saying that they are not the originators of the scripture. It's the Holy Spirit that is the originator. So you know, Scripture is not of any individual who just sat down. Paul didn't just sit down one day and say, hey, it'd be great to write Scripture. No, the Holy Spirit used Paul. So he, this Bible is not the individual writing of Paul in the sense that Paul is the originator of, of the text. But then also, uh, you, you, you don't take one verse of Scripture and build a whole doctrine of that one particular verse. You compare Scripture with Scripture which is one of the basic principles of interpretation that we'll come to eventually when we talk about how do we interpret the Bible. Um, so it's not, it's not um, we've got to recognize that the Bible is inspired. It's not of any individual who just sat down and wrote, but also that no one passage uh, individually uh, and exclusively sets up forth a teaching without comparing it with other passages of Scripture. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 844. Pastor, is Bible study worthwhile if I'm not a believer? Can I benefit from it? I would, I would, look, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 makes a statement that is shocking. It says, The natural man understandeth not the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. But we know what God because we have the Spirit. The unsaved man does not have the Spirit of God. He's not saved. But I would not at all discourage him from trying to do his own study. The Holy Spirit needs something to work with. And the tool that the Holy Spirit uses is the Word. You get the Word into an individual, then when the Holy Spirit comes and brings conviction, he will use the Word. So there has to be the Spirit and the Word. So we have to we have to teach the Word, we have to preach the Word, and I would recommend people read the Word and study the Word, give the Holy Spirit something to work with, and as you, as if you're an unsaved person, uh, just pray to God for enlightenment. Lord, reveal to me the truth, and uh, teach me your Word. And once I understand the truth and believe the truth, I will obey the truth. Come with an open mind. So I do not discourage unsaved people from reading the Bible. Uh, I think, I, as a matter of fact, I think it's one of the big mistakes we've made in the schools. I mentioned before that when I was in school, we had a devotion every single morning. There was a Bible reading. There was a preaching. 
uh, and then there was a time of prayer every single morning and it was not even a Christian school it was normal we would sing songs out of the um, they had a song book we would sing as well uh, some of the songs I hear in church when I hear the pianist playing it take me back to my school days. I can remember exactly when I sang that song, and I was in primary school at time, and I'm now 65. I can still remember that. We've got to get the word, and I think what is happening. By the way, notice that in America now there are about 16 states in America now reintroducing the Bible back into the school. They took the Bible out, and now they're reaping the the tragedy of that. And uh, so I think that one of the mistakes we're making that we yes. Pastor, we have a caller calling. Uh, thank you for calling, and go ahead quickly with your question, please. A blessed night to the both of you in the studio. Good night, sir. My brothers. Um, last week, I was listening to, to the program, and I heard that, if, if I don't remember right, if I'm wrong, I, I stand for correction. I thought I heard you say that there's no, no woman ever wrote the Bible, which I'm not doubting, okay? But I was the one who told a girl last week to find it, to ask you, I give my two questions. Okay. It is, who write Esther and Ruth? The book of Esther and the book of Ruth. Yeah, we we started the program tonight with that, Pastor. I don't know. I think maybe you tuned in late to the program. Yes, because I was listening to a next program, and it's a while finished now. So I just tuned in because I know this is yeah. you know that your program was on. But I usually listen to a program. Okay, we yeah. just finish, you know, and I didn't know that you already spoke on it. Yeah, let me quickly tell you what I I can't go back to the details, but the Book of Ruth was actually, according to Jewish tradition, uh, was actually written by, the, by Samuel, the prophet. And the reason for that, of course, is that if you read the book of Ruth, the final chapter, David is mentioned. Samuel was a prophet during the time of David. So the Jews have always um, held traditionally that the book of Ruth was actually written by, by Samuel. The book of Esther, um, the, according to Jewish tradition, was, was either written by Mordecai, which was Esther's um, uncle, and he's the one that had access to the the records of the Persian Empire. If you read the uh, chapter 9, you'll see uh, that he's the one that had access to the Persian records. The reason why that's important, because in that particular book, there's a lot about the customs and traditions, about uh, a lot of Persian words, thoughts about Haman and uh, the king, would indicate that whoever uh, wrote the book must have had access to the Persian records. Mordecai would be the suitable person. The other tradition is, of course, that it was written by Ezra and Nehemiah. And that's what the, is believed. Uh, but there's no particular word, um, or, or um, there's nothing in those books themselves that says who write it. It's just that the Jewish tradition, which, and if you know anything about the Jews, they have held to their traditions from, I mean, for centuries and, and millennia. They've always been the type of people that have kept their traditions, oral traditions and also written traditions. So there's no reason to doubt uh, that what they have passed on from generation to generation, that these two books, one was written by Samuel, and the other one was probably written by Ezra Nehemiah or, uh, or Mordecai. Okay, I see the reason why I wouldn't doubt, because the Word of God tells me that God worked in mysterious ways. Yes. You understand? So I would never doubt it. But what I will do is sit down 
Don't play it on it. No. Uh-huh. And read, read, read the two books. Yeah. You know, and search for, search for answers because I yeah. love. I should say to Google. Yeah, let me say something else to quickly about those two books. The book of Ruth, for example, and uh, the reason why that book is so important is because it records the genealogy of David and how the Messiah would come through the Davidic line through Jesse and David. That's the reason why the whole book of Ruth is written to, to show you where the genealogy of Christ. The Messiah is going to come through the line of David. And the book of Ruth shows you how uh, Jesse's father, uh, David's father, and uh, give Jesse, give David a Jesse. So it gives you that genealogy that will give you a link between uh, the Messiah and the Davidic line. The book of Esther, the importance of the book of Esther, is how God preserved his people from extermination. Remember, the Messiah is coming to the Jew. And Satan, from the very inception, be trying to destroy the Jew. Haman was trying to exterminate the entire Jewish population. If you, if you get, got rid of the Jew and you killed all the Jews, no Messiah will be born because the Messiah is coming through the, the line of Abraham, through the Jewish line. So the book of Esther records how God super, um, supernaturally and providentially preserved the Jewish nation from destruction and from extermination. And the reason for that is the Messiah is coming to the line of the Jewish nation, and if the Jewish nation is destroyed, the Messiah can never be born. And Satan has always been attacking the Jewish people to destroy the Jewish people because it is to them that the Messiah was going to come. So that's why it is so important for those two books to be seen uh, and the role that they play and the purpose that they play within the, the economy of God in terms of the, the Messiah coming into the world to bring redemption. Okay, so what I gather from that, right? Uh-huh. The Jew. When you mention the Jew. Yes. Not the whole thing, but just the name the Jew. Yes. It's telling me that the Jews are the Hebrews, right? Are they what? The Hebrews. Yes, they're the Hebrews. They're the same words as Hebrews. Uh-huh. Okay. So it, it's leading me back down to the children of Israel. Oh, right. That's what we're talking about. Remember that? Okay. I got it. Good. Abraham was the, was the one that God chose who the Messiah would come through. And that line, that the Messiah had to come to the line of Abraham, to the line of um, J- uh, J- Jacob, to the line of Judah, and uh, through the line of David. Uh, that's why you have the genealogy in the book of Matthew chapter 1 and also um, uh, Luke chapter 2, where the genealogy, you know, people read the genealogies, this begot that, and they don't understand the importance of it. It's very boring. But without the genealogy, there'd be no way, no credentials. The Messiah had to have certain credentials. He had to come to a certain lane. And yep. if he did not come to that line, you would know that he's not the Messiah. And that's why the Jews have preserved their documents for centuries and for millennia, because the Messiah was coming to the Davidic line. Uh, so you, you get what I'm saying? That's why those two books are so important. Yes, you see, that is very deep because <laughs> it sends me... I don't remember the Revelation, uh-huh. but it sends me... Revelation where the word of God says that the 12 tribes uh-huh. of Israel, which is the Hebrew, which is the Jew, right, right, and Christ came to that tribe. Yeah, you're right, correct. He came to this, uh, and Paul's writings as well. The, if you read Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul talks about the Messiah coming to. 
uh, Christ coming through the line of the Jews. So yeah. that's the teaching of the Bible. The Messiah had to come through somebody, had to come through, a, but God chose the Jewish nation as the one through whom the Messiah would come. And that's why there has been such a brutal attack and a consistent attack on the destruction of the Jewish people because they are the ones to whom the Messiah would come. Uh, and that is why if you check the, the whole history of the nation of Israel, they've been through one fire after another, one trial after another. The destruction of Israel is, is the, 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 the focus of uh, satanic enmity to destroy so the Messiah would not come. Even now today, um, God still has a purpose for the Jew when the church is raptured. Read Romans 8, 9, and 10. You'll find that God has a purpose for the Jew that um, the church will be raptured and then he will graft the Jew back into his plan and then God will, will send the um, Jewish evangelists 144,000 in the book of Revelation that will carry the gospel to the ends of the world. But um, we'll come to that at some future time when it comes to dealing with Bible prophecy. But thank you so much for calling and for giving the question. I hope we've been helpful to you. Yes, you know, well, there's one last thing I would like to say. Go right ahead, sir. Because i glad, I'm, I'm so happy that I asked the question about Ruth and, you know. Okay. Because now that you are opening up, opening up it to me, that gave me a lot of revelation. Okay. The last, the last thing I would like to say that when, when the children of this, okay, the, the struggles are the, how should I put it? The the trials that they go through, uh -huh. that tell telling me they didn't have to go through that trial because Christ Himself must go through those trials. Yeah, I agree with you. The, the other thing, if I might interject here for just a moment, is that the Jew is now in unbelief. Even though the Messiah came, they have rejected the Messiah. And uh, the current nation of Israel, where it is, and the people who are there, the majority of those people do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But it is during the tribulation period that God will purge Israel and bring Israel back to belief because the yeah. only one that will be able to save them is God and they will cry out to him as a, as he says, as a, a mother cries for a baby basically. So they are going to go through much more severe trials in the tribulation period for example. Two thirds of the Jews are going to die. One third will be left. The book of Revelation tells you that. So they are going to go through a time of severe trial during the tribulation period. But God is going to use uh, his wrath and his anger to bring them back to faith. And sometimes you know that it takes punishment to bring people to their senses and yeah, I think that's exactly I, what's going to happen uh, um, you know what I'm so happy that I called in and I spoke to you God is using you to, bring, to, to speak to me so I could get those revelations well I'm thankful that uh, we're able to help you and I do appreciate your sending in those questions. If you have any more questions, you can send them in as well, and we'll try to answer them for you. You keep on praying for the program, and uh, we really appreciate your contribution. Thank you very much for that call from Antigua. We appreciate it. Keep listening to the station. Keep listening to the program. Keep encouraging others to listen and to interact also. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, pastor, I heard a pastor recently say that uh, man can... 
man cannot completely understand everything that is in the Bible. There's so much depth and richness to it. So is it safe then to say that the Bible is a book of secrets? No, the, the Bible is clearly not a, a book of secrets. Uh, God, it's a very simple thing to, to, to show that. For example, take the, the, the Greek language in which the New Testament was written. Just think for just a moment. When they first discovered the, the documents for the New Testament, they, they couldn't understand the language. They thought it was some kind of heavenly language because it was not classic Greek. But what kind of Greek is it? And this is what puzzled them for a period of time. It is only when they started digging into the, the garbage heaps of the ancient world that they discovered that the documents they found, like the uh, receipts, like uh, letters, was the same language that the Bible was written. So what they understood that it was written in the vernacular of the common man. And, and th- that was like a revelation because they always thought this was a unique form of Greek language. So it is very, very clear if you just take that as an example that God intended the Bible to be read and understood by the average man because it was written in the average language, the dialogue and the dialect of the common man. So would you take that to mean that we should be studying the Bible on an everyday basis, that we should be using it in our everyday life? It's not something to be kept on the shelf until Sunday. I think if people would just get to the Word on mornings before they go to work and to have a time of prayer, it would have a trans- transformative effect in the lives of people. I think it would make a difference in the workplace. I think it would make a difference in the home. It would make a difference in society. We need to get back to God and His Word. Make sure you join us next week. We will be picking up this topic of how to properly study the Bible and how to interpret it properly to make sure that we don't fall into any common pitfalls or misunderstandings. Thanks for joining us tonight. Have a blessed night. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.